Father, we come before you again. We are told to always give thanks, and so we give you thanks, Lord, for the building that you have provided for us, for our health that we are able even to be in this building, and for the environment of dwelling in your word. We ask that it would dwell in us richly, that it would produce fruit, that we'd be able to see the change in our lives, Lord. But again, as I have prayed through the book of Exodus, help us to learn these lessons here, to bring them to the forefront, to recall them whenever a situation comes up where we need to take heed, where we need to be informed, where we need to give a word of encouragement or a word of warning. There's so many of those here, Father, in the book of Exodus that you have provided. We recognize that. So please teach us and guide us more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we left off, Passover has just taken place. The Jews plundered the Egyptians by asking and receiving clothing, gold, and jewels. They headed out into the desert, and Pharaoh ends up pursuing them because he thinks that they are just wandering around around aimlessly, not knowing where they're going. And God has set up a defense. He has provided this cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, where they go into the wilderness and they're following this pillar, this cloud that goes before them. And they come up to the edge of the Sea of Aqaba. Uh, Some people call it the Red Sea. It's just the arm that comes off of the Red Sea. And as they are waiting there, Pharaoh, of course, he's in hot pursuit. And he, with his armies and the chariots, they're all lining up. And God, the, the Shekinah glory of God, goes from in front of the people of Israel to the rear, and it blocks the way of the Egyptians who are going to come in and plunder and pillage the Jews who have just left Egypt. And so God is protecting them. And on the side of the Egyptians, darkness is over there. God causes there to be darkness to where they can't see really what they're doing. But on the other side, there is light for the Jews who are supposed to cross the Red Sea. And we got into this. And left off in verse, I believe it was 20, we're going to pick it up. And No, we actually, it was a little after that, but we're going to pick it up in verse 21 of Exodus chapter 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And so this this water, again, it's a wall. It's not that the water's just receded. It is a straight-up wall. I just um, saw a little clip about the Prince of Egypt. It was a cartoon that was made about the Exodus and Moses, and it came out several years ago, but it was a good representation of what was taking place. And if you have children, it's a good idea maybe to get that and show the kids and your family what exactly took place. But this is in the Gulf of Aqaba. And at its widest point, the Gulf of Aqaba is 15 miles across. It is said that the area in which the Jews went down to the beachhead was only about eight miles across. Now, I showed you the picture, I think it was two weeks ago, of the land bridge that is underneath the water in the Gulf of Aqaba. And this land bridge, it's only so wide, but different estimates are in research if you look at it as to how far down or how deep that land bridge was. Some estimates were 
it was 33 meters, or it was 108 feet deep. And so if they were exiting the land and going to where the water was, they would have had to go down 108 feet. That's the least of the estimates. The greatest estimate was 800 feet. Now, 800 feet isn't that much if it stretches over 8 to 15 miles. It's just a gradual decline and a gradual incline. So if you remember that that map or that picture that I gave you of the topography underneath the water, that land bridge was pretty narrow. Now, as far as how, how wide would God have made the walls of water apart from each other in order to get two or three million people across? I mean, that, that is quite a trek uh, to go through there with that many people. Was it a football field wide? Was it maybe two football fields wide? You couldn't get much wider than that. And then millions of people pouring in uh, to the sea area and coming out the other side, it would have been quite the feat with all the animals and all the goods and the carts and everything just going through there. And then how many of the people would have wanted to go up to the wall of water and go, whoa, you know, they would all have been stuck on the sides instead of in the middle. And they would have wanted to put their hand up on it and run it across there. And when you do the search in the original language, what that wall was like If you look up the words, it talks about being like curdled milk. That's the word that is used. Uh, To give it a more modern-day interpretation, maybe like gelatin, where you would have gone up to the wall, and it would have been not really solid, but it would have been more firm than just actual water. And so that is the description of what is there. So they may have gone down 108 feet all the way to 800 feet or 850 feet. And then on either side, the Gulf of Aqaba, oh, yeah, that's it, right there. On either side in this Gulf of Aqaba there, it goes down to 6,080 feet. And so God, he already had this in mind, what was going to take place, where they were going to go through, and if they were going to go into the water on either side, it goes down more than a mile, 5,280 feet is a mile, and so if it gets down to 6,080 feet, it is dark down there. If you go down scuba diving, you start losing light uh, even after 60 feet, and if you get down to 135 feet, it's really dim, and all the way down to 6,000 feet, there is nothing that is going to be coming out of there with any kind of light. Now, with this, on this particular land bridge, people have gone over there and they said, you know, if this is true, if this is a historical event and Pharaoh was actually, his armies were actually consumed by the waters, there should be evidence that they went across this land bridge. Do you think there's evidence? Well, first I want you, John, to show me the... This is a chariot wheel, right, from ancient times. And you can see, wow, okay, you would put this on a, a chariot and it would work just fine. Well, this is what they found in the Gulf of Aqaba. Give me a picture. You see that? You think that's artificial or do you think that's man-made? This is on that land bridge. This is one of several pictures that are there. Now, the, this one here, it's hard to make this out. But there is a circle there, and in the middle of the circle is like a post coming up, and there's coral over the whole thing. There you go. Now, you can kind of see that. This is in the land bridge. Now, coral doesn't form on sand. 
coral has to have a rock surface that's grounded on the rock or some type of hard surface material. Okay, show me the next picture here. Now, if you look at that, coral normally doesn't form like this. Now, there are some staghorn corals that will come up and they'll kind of branch out a little bit. But to have a center post that comes up like that with a flat tier across the top, this is highly unusual. This portends to an artificial structure. And what they've done is they've put in these chariot wheels. Now, why would a chariot wheel be all by itself underneath the water here? Scripture tells us that God caused the chariot wheels to come off of the chariots. And so there they got stuck underneath. Now, you might say, oh, come on. Now, I want to let you know. They will not let anybody take anything out of the water here. If you look, there are some more pictures, and I don't know if any of them have been fabricated, but there are some more pictures of gold chariot wheels down there. I think what they did is they grabbed one, cleaned it off, and put it back on the bottom is what they probably did. But you can see how the spokes would be up in that kind of tree, and the rest of the tire would have, or the rest of the wheel would have fallen off, probably being wood going around there. It could have been metal. It could have been gold of some kind. But there are all these structures in the Gulf of Aqaba on this land bridge. Now, if you knew this to be there, and you wanted some evidence, and you wanted to show it to everybody, people can't go over there and just go scuba diving. They have to get permits, and then they're strictly warned, don't take anything out of the water. And then they examine before they go, and they examine when they come back. And so it's strictly regulated. And I've told you this also uh, uh, about Mount Sinai, where Moses took the people, it's in Arabia. They will not allow you to go there. And the only pictures that have come out of there are people who have snuck in under the cover of night and they've taken pictures and they've avoided the guards who are in the area and it's all fenced off in there. And they don't want anybody going over there. They want to protect this information. They don't want this information going out. I'm surprised that if ISIS gets in the area, if, if, will they destroy this stuff? I think that they might because they don't want any of the evidence, the truthfulness of the biblical story to come out. Now, this gives a reason for faith. This gives some hope for us. When we see evidence like this, you don't just simply say, ah, it's just a fable. It's just all made up. Maybe it's an epic story where you make a conglomeration of all these different stories and you put it into one. God is very specific here about what he does with the nation of Israel and how he has saved them. Now, later on, the prophet Isaiah recorded this miracle. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 10, it says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea, so that the redeemed might cross over? And so this is a historical fact, and it was recorded hundreds of years later that this was taking place. And God wants to make sure that we get this information thousands of years later as well, because he wants us to learn from it. Now, in verse 23... It says, the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. I don't think this is a very bright move here. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud, pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, here's the bonus statement here. Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. You think? I mean, there have been 
ten plagues, right? Miraculous plagues. And it ended up with the death of the firstborn child in the house. Then they go out into this wilderness and you see this funky cloud. It's like this pillar that is up there. Then this cloud moves in front of you to prevent you from going to the other side. And it makes your area dark. You can't see anything on your side. And on the other side, you can tell there's kind of light over there. And all the, and what? The, the water opens up. I know. Let's go in there too. Do you think that God would have been opposing? I mean, come on. There had to be somebody in the Egyptian army going, I don't think this is a good idea, right? Maybe we shouldn't go down there. And somebody finally cries out and says, the Lord is fighting for the Israelites against Egypt. Yeah. And so what do they do? Let's get out of here. And they're, they're thrown into confusion. Could you see what was happening? If half of the army says, let's get out of here. And the other half of the army says, don't turn around, you traitor. Let's go in there. And all of a sudden, there's confusion everywhere. And then God causes the wheels to fall off. I mean, it was just, it was mayhem. It wasn't even a battle. And God's holding back the waters. And he goes, whoop. And he takes his hand away. And they are all overcome with the water. The armies of the Egyptians are completely destroyed Boy, there are so many lessons that are here. You know, what was the first clue? The ten plagues. What about the pillar of darkness and light? What about the sea parting? You know, I made some observations about these Egyptians here. And if we keep the context of the Egyptians being like a representative of the world and the enemies of God and the Jews are the equivalent to the saved or the elect or those who are redeemed, the Egyptians ignored or refused to acknowledge what was right in front of them in other words is there a god is god real these are basic questions we all come to this question at one point or another in order to be pleasing to god you must believe that he is that he exists and so all of us come to one point and say is there a god or is there not a god is this all randomness that just came about because of the circumstances of chemical interactions and then life started with the amino acids which are out there and produced the single cell organisms which eventually crawled out of the water, which eventually started running and flying and walking and all of those things. Is that how it happened? Or did God actually create everything? The evidence is ubiquitous. It is just everywhere. We know that the book of Romans tells us this. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So God says, look, there's so much evidence out there. You don't have to look anywhere else. Just look at creation. Look how it works. It is just a marvelous function of the creativeness of God, which is out there. And so you have to believe that God exists. But the Egyptians, just like the people of the world who don't want anything to do with God, they say, no, I'm not going to believe it. It's kind of like the person 
they don't want to see something or they want to deny it and they go blah 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 they cover their eye blah blah i can't hear what you're saying that's what they're actually doing now that may be a little more uh, comical view of what's happening but they're refusing now i don't want to hear it don't talk to me about that and what normally they do is they raise the tenor of their voice instead of strengthening strengthening the uh information or the argument which they maintain Because, again, the evidence is just ubiquitous out there. There is no reason to believe that there is not a God based on the systems that God has put into place. The world ignores what is right in front of them. The creation and its creator, all the marvelous works he has done, there is more than ample evidence to believe that he exists. And just as the wrath of God came upon the Egyptians, the wrath of God will come on those who refuse to believe. It isn't that there's not evidence. It's just they refuse to believe and place their hope in the creator, Jesus Christ. And this is an example for us. Everything that the Jews, and by extension the Egyptians, everything that they went to has been recorded for us so that we would place ourselves in their shoes, either the shoes of the Egyptians or the shoes of the Jews. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, and Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So God tells us specifically what the Jews did, learn from it. What the Egyptians did, learn from that. And then if you place yourself in their shoes, which one are you? And you know, when I do this, I go, okay, am I an Egyptian? Am I refusing to believe? Just outright being obstinate and saying, no, I'm not going to believe what God says. Or am I being like a Jew? A Jew would be, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> Look at the walls of water here. Wow, oh man, what, where's the Egyptians? And okay, just, Moses said just to go forward. And they're operating by faith. They're just going, man, I can't believe this. They're following Moses. And they, in turn, they are being blessed and they're seeing the miraculous signs that God has put out there. So which one are we? Are we the Egyptians that say, no, I don't care. The Bible's good and it helps me with my life. Or yes, I've seen God work and it is a marvelous thing and I need to trust him even more. Well, judgment came to the Egyptians because they're being willfully ignorant and stuck in their unbelief. They refuse to repent. And you might say, the argument usually comes up when you're talking with somebody, if you're witnessing to them. And maybe you give them this particular story. There are the Egyptians and there are the Jews. And which one are you? Do you refuse to believe in God? Or do you like the Jews that follow God and the Christ, which is the rock and the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, which is out there? Do you do that? Do you not do that? And the person usually reverts to, well, I'm not that bad, right? Okay, I'm going to blow up the self-esteem here. We are bad. We are so bad. And you might say, well, they're a good person. There is no such thing as a good person. There are people who do good deeds. And when a person gets saved, God's righteousness 
becomes our righteousness. God tells us in Corinthians that we are harmful, that we are bad. We are so bad, we are rotting. Do you know that we are rotting? Just don't take a shower for a few days. You'll see. You're rotting. You're rotting from the outside in. And if you don't take care of yourself, you will eventually die, right? That we are corrupted. And God says, the soul on the inside, that's where the heart of the corruption lies. And God says he'll give us a new heart. He'll provide for us a new way. But we have to wait for that to be completed when we get our new bodies. In the meantime, we are here. And if we recognize that we are fallen individuals, if we recognize that we have the sin, and we say, God, please deliver me from this sin, he says, I was waiting for you to ask that. And he gives us his grace, and he goes, it is such a blessing for me to do this for you, to get you saved. And that's what God wants. And it's the grace of God. And you think, okay, so when do I get my new body? You have to wait. And in the meantime, we struggle. And we get disappointed in ourselves. God, I didn't do this the way you wanted me to do it, and I'm so sorry. And he goes, I know. You get my grace for this time because then you're going to get a new body and you're not going to have to worry about making the wrong choices. You'll make the right choices at that point. But because you have humbled yourself at this particular point, God says, you get salvation. If you humble yourself before God and you repent before him and ask him to save you, he will. So we have this individual that just refuses to believe. Then I had this other observation. There were those who were the leaders, namely Pharaoh, who insisted on believing he could overcome God and his work. Right? And there were those who were the rank-and-file soldiers. They were just doing what they were told. They were going with the flow. Some could have left with all the Jews when they left Egypt. They could have left their old life and the Egyptians representing the world and become part of the chosen people, but for whatever reason, they did not. So you have these individuals who were in the world, and they say, this is where we're going, and we're forgetting about God. We have leaders that actually do that, or they go to foreign gods. Then you have rank and file, the individuals that occupy the nations, the countries of the world, and they join the armies, and they join the government, and they join these groups, whatever groups may be out there, and they're just going with the flow. Why are you doing this? Well, I don't know. My family did it. I'm doing it. It's just the way things go. But then they get a glimpse of the glory of God, his works, and the things that he has done. They get a testimony. They get a New Testament. They find out somebody has come and delivered them the gospel. And then they just say, well, you know, my family is here. I would lose my whole family if I gave myself to Christ. So I'm just going to hang out with them for their sake. God says, no, come out from them. Let the dead bury the dead. We're supposed to forsake everything in this life in order to follow Christ because we're not taking anything with us to the next life, not even our bodies. God preserves our life, our souls, the spirit that is inside of us. But he is going to transform us and give us a completely new body. And so there are those who just go with the flow. There are those who are obstinate, stiff-necked, belligerent, self-serving individuals who will never know how to bow their knee to God. Then there are those who are just apathetic, noncommittal. They go with the flow. I would have to leave my family, my friends who I love, and I would have to suffer the consequences of being separated from them. And so they don't leave because of that. And those would have been those in the Egyptian army who said, 
God's fighting for them. Let's get out of here. Well, they got caught up in it and they were judged and they were killed. And it was too late for them. It's kind of like when the rapture happens. All the Christians are going to be gone. And the ones who thought they were saved, they're going to be here going, uh-oh, this is not good. And God says, and I don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen in our lifetimes. It could happen in the next lifetime, the next generation. All I know, it's getting closer than it was 2,000 years ago when this was written. And he tells us to be prepared. He tells us, just forsake everything. Just follow after him, and we'll have blessing if we do. But sadly, there are many who won't. My exhortation in this is sell out to God. Don't be one who goes with the flow. Do you guys remember that shirt from the 80s and 90s? that showed all the fish on the front of the shirt, and they're all going in this direction, which is to my left, right? And then there's one that's going the right way, and he's going against the flow. That's what God calls us to do. How many will go to the left, which is that way for you? How many will go to the left? Most of the world And there's only a few that say, "Ah, I'm going to go against the flow. I don't think this is the right way to go. I don't want to be one of those lemmings that just go over the cliff, that follow what everybody else is doing. So we want to make sure that we graduate from being an observer to being a participant. Whatever God asks of us, that's what we want to do. And we want to give of him everything that is ours. Jim Elliott, uh, from the tip of the spear fame, the husband of Elizabeth Elliott, He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If we give up everything in this life for the sake of Christ, we would be no fool to do so. We would be wise. Then thirdly, there's this observation of God's protection. God protected the Jews from the armies of the Egyptians. God will also protect us from the power of the enemy. The enemy will never be able to separate us from God's love and God's care. The, The Israelites... Not a single one of them was harmed out of the two or three million that were there. We have no record of that whatsoever. They were not killed by the Egyptians, certainly. Romans chapter 8 tells us this. It reinforces this. In verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he has given us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the things that are to come. So what a promise that is. I mean, if you get eternal life and God says, I'm going to give it to you, I promise to do so, here's my Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, and you go, no, I'm just going to go with the flow. What? You don't want eternal life? You don't want a body that doesn't break down anymore? You don't want to just live in bliss all the time and forget all the mayhem and the sadness and the sorrow from the past? You don't want that? No, I'm just going to stick with my family. Do you see the foolishness of that kind of position? It's like, sell out, man. Go for it completely. Uh, And I was talking to the youth about this and being committed to God. That God wants our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants everything. He is a jealous God. And if he doesn't get it from us, his jealousness comes to the forefront. What are you doing with that? Why are you going after that idol over there? Why don't you just come follow me? And God exhorts us gently by his Holy Spirit, and sometimes not so gently, that we are supposed to be committed. We are supposed to be sold out. If you go into the Marines, who here was a Marine? 
Hi, I, I'm a Marine, right? <laughs> Come on, Johnny. What, what do the Marines say? What's the phrase that they say? Semper Fi. Semper Fidelis, right? But what else when they're, they're out there and they're marching along, what do they say? They what? Hoorah. They say hoorah. <laughs> you know, this guy, he's like six foot 20 and, he, you know, he's muscle all over the place. Oh, it's just gentleness. It's pervading everywhere. You know, it's kind of nice. But when you're on the battlefield, what is it? Kill, destroy, break, maim, just do whatever you need to do. Now, are the Marines sold out? Do you not know if the Marines are sold out? If you go and you become a Marine, hoorah, and you're bouncing around, you're doing everything. You are, you did pugil sticks, right? Oh, have you ever tried a pugil stick? Talk about hurt. A pugil stick is a stick, and then it has these long, kind of cushiony things, not so much, on the ends. And the bigger you are, the more force you have with that. And you wear this helmet and you have the, the stick that you're holding on to. And you are in actual hand-to-hand combat with the person that's in front of you. And you're banging. You, you want to get the person down and turn that thing like a spear or a sword. And you want to stick it in them. And, I mean, it's just battleship, right? And that's what the Marines are. What if you get a Marine that's, okay, we're going to do pugil sticks today. What if that guy is just going to get beat up, right? It's like, get over here, buddy. And the other Marines are going, you better get with the program, man. And it's bashing in, you know, and they fall down, probably knock them out. Go to the infirmary, you little crybaby. You know, that's kind of what they do. That's what a Marine does. But as a Christian, oh, it's all love and peace and joy. We are in a battle for the very souls of humanity. And we need to sell out for that. We need to be doing what God wants us to do. Whatever you put your hand to do, do it with all your might. Like you young ladies who has a guy that gets fresh. Take that hand, extend it out like this, flatten it, and take it across. Do it with all your might, something like that. You want to make sure you are not half committed as a Christian because the rewards are tremendous. And you might say, well, it's hard. It is hard. Life is hard. Being a Marine is hard. Being a Christian is hard. Well, people will make fun of me. Yeah, they'll make fun of you. Well, sometimes I'm going to be embarrassed and humiliated. Yeah, sometimes you're going to be embarrassed and humiliated. It goes with the territory, but the rewards are eternal. And so we want to make sure we're not doing this just halfway, and God protects us anyhow in the midst of that. Now, if we lose our lives in being Christians... All the more glory for us. You know, that's what God says. But we fear that, but I might die. We're going to die anyhow. I mean, that's just the way it works. God has cursed this entire world. It's all under judgment. But he goes, here's the way out. It's hard, I know, but I will be with you. That's why David could say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see how it starts at, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But at the end of it, it's like, yeah, it's going to be a celebration it's going to be a party and so that's what god has in store for us that's what we're supposed to learn the nation of israel was protected even though it was hard they went through all of these plagues god delivered them and when we get to chapter 15 it's like 
Hoorah! It's just fantastic. Well, let's see if we can get there. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left that day the lord saved israel from the hand of the egyptians and israel saw the egyptians lying dead on the shore and when the israelites saw the great power the lord displayed against the egyptians the people feared the lord and put their trust in him and in moses his servant it says they feared the lord and then put their trust that's how it has to happen. You have to fear God. And you went, what? Like I should cower in the corner and who he is? There are some who mix up what fear or the fear of the Lord actually means. In Job chapter 28, verse 28, it says, And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. And so God says to fear him, this is Wisdom. This is smart. This is useful. This is, has a utilitarian aspect to it. It is pragmatic if you fear God. Well, what is it you're supposed to fear about God? The judgment that is to come. There is a judgment which is to come, and we will all receive reward or suffer loss of reward at the Bema Seat of Christ when we see him and we stand before him and give an account of what we have done in this life. Now, do you fear, if you're working for somebody, that you have to go in and give an account? Maybe you have to spit out some reports. Maybe you have to say what you did on the job and where you went. And you go before your boss, who has the power to fire you, to judge you, or to give you a raise. And you go, okay, I'm trying to be the best at this as I can. Here's what I've done. Here's all the paperwork, and I just want you to see that. Is there anything that you need, any questions at all that you have? And you are respectful of that employer. At least you should be because that's what God says. And so you, to some degree, there is a fear of your employer. Well, that fear should be magnified a hundred times because God has the power to destroy the soul and put it into hell. Or he has the power to bless that same soul and place it in heaven with a new body. Place that person in heaven with a new body. There are several Proverbs that deal with this fear of the Lord issue. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life. The ver- Excuse me, Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 16, 6. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Proverbs 22, 4. Humility and the fear of the Lord brings wealth and honor and life. And do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 23, verse 17. The Egyptians did not fear God. The obstinate, I will not believe in you, I will not follow you attitude that Pharaoh had and the leaders of the nation of Egypt, it cost them dearly. It cost them their firstborn, it cost them their possessions, it cost them the wealth in the nation of Egypt. But there is a distinction with this type of fear, the fear of the Lord, 
with just deliberately changing fear into something else. If you fear God, there should be no fearful expectation of judgment. But the fear of the Lord is a hedge of protection. It keeps us from doing wrong. It keeps us on the right path. It removes the fear of judgment. The fear of the Lord removes the fear of death. It removes fear of tomorrow. And this is where you get into anxiety. Anxiety, I just read an article, there are seven sins that we tolerate inside the body of Christ, that we fear what's going to happen tomorrow. We fear for our finances. We fear for our health. And we're afraid, like, what if this happens? What if that happens? We didn't need to just say, and? Because the Lord's going to reconstruct everything for us and make it completely better. The Lord tells us to be anxious about nothing. That doesn't mean we're not to be anxious or fearful about God himself. He is the one that keeps us on the right path. He's the one that gives us wisdom. This is what the Egyptians did not do. The Israelites, they did. They feared God when they saw what he did. If you do not read the Bible, you do not know the stories, you do not fear him for what is to come and what he has done in the past, you must have that Bible, his word, inside of you in order to walk in the fear of the Lord, which is wisdom, and he will provide for you long life. He will provide for you good things that he has in store, and he brings them to us. But if we fail to do that, if we fail to invest in God's word and into his kingdom, then we're going to run into trouble. We could have a shortened life. We could have poverty come upon us. There's things that the Lord says, like, for instance, the fool loves sleep. A little folding of the hands, a little resting of the eyes, and pretty soon that individual comes to poverty. There's no fear that the Lord wants us to work, and he wants us to provide something not only for our families. The man who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. But we're also to provide for those who are out there who need something, who are lacking in some way, whether it's food or clothing or shelter. That is our job. But the fear of the Lord is what we want to focus on and not being worried about the things of tomorrow. Matthew chapter 6 says this therefore i tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body what you will wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow they do not reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them just as the israelites were protected god protects us we're not to fear the things of the world Nothing can harm us as far as God's plan is concerned. God will keep us on the straight and narrow. Now, with this, perfect love casts out fear. If we have the love of God in our hearts, all that fear just goes away. If we don't have the love of God, which is, again, the word of God, if we don't have that in us, we're going to be fearful all the time. And we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to worry that a meteor is going to come down out of heaven and strike us dead. Just like I told you about that one guy a couple of weeks ago. Bummer. Man, that meteor just, it hit him and it killed him. That's what happened. You don't have to fear that. If it does, it just means glory for us, right? So with this, you see, you see what's going on with the Egyptians. You are either an Egyptian or you an Israelite. And you want to make sure if you're an Israelite, you fear the Lord and you put your trust in him. Now, in closing, I have two minutes. What's taking place this next week on Tuesday? Super Tuesday, there's somebody that knows that, that's good. Super Tuesday, 13 states and one territory are participating in a national election. This national election, which is coming up, will probably select the candidates for the general election. That's how it's going to work. For instance, 
And you're going, wait a second, how did you go from the Bible to politics? Just bear with me, all right? <laughs> this whole life. You have Mario. What state is Mario from? Mar- Marco, not Mario. Marco. Florida. He's from Florida. If he loses Florida, he's out. Marco Rubio. John Kasich. What state is he from? Ohio. If he loses Ohio, he's out. Ted Cruz, what state is he from? Texas. If he loses Texas, where does he go? Out of the pool. He's done. Right? We don't know how this is going to turn out. It could continue for a little while longer, but we do know those three scenarios apply. Now, say, for instance, the followers of Trump win. What do you think they're going to do? Riot. Yeah, they're going to riot. They're going to go out. You know, they're going to have all kinds of fun. If the people who are on Cruz's team, if they win, what are they going to do? Yeah, righteousness prevails. And they're just going to start marching on Christian shoulders or whatever it's going to be. And, and if Rubio survives, it's going to be like Cinco de Mayo, even though he's from Cuba, all over again. That's just going to be a great thing. And, you know, if uh, John Kasich wins in Ohio, they're right next to wisconsin up there somewhere they're probably going to break out some cheese you know something like that i don't know what they're going to do but it's just going to be a great thing everybody's going to be rejoicing whoever wins when moses went through all of this and all the people got out the other side what do you think that they did it was a party there is actually we'll probably do this song next week I will sing unto the Lord, for he had triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. And Miriam gets out her tambourine. And and they're shaking. I mean, they had this party. And that is in Exodus chapter 15 that we get to. And they just start praising God. And just go, whoa, do you believe what just took place? And they are just in awe. And then they're not. That's what happens. So we're going to save that for next week. But let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these Israelites and what they have gone through. It's such an example to us. And help us to avoid the pitfalls that they fell into. And help us to hold on to the things that they did right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they put their trust in you because of this. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be sold out to you. Help us to leave behind Egypt and follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And everyone said, amen.